I spend a lot of time talking about why cemeteries are valuable and important parts of modern society. But it's often hard to justify that. How do we quantify cemeteries in the larger scheme of society? More importantly, how can we use planning, that is historic planning, to help us in our quest to protect cemeteries? Today I want to talk about long-term goal planning and how you, as a friend to cemeteries, can utilize that as a way to protect and preserve them for the future. Today we're talking cemetery master plans. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So I've been very history heavy the past couple of weeks, and as a result, I wanted to do a preservation topic. I haven't really done one since the episode that I did on the National Register. The same way that I tried to apply my very own knowledge that I have working in cultural resource management to the discussion of listing cemeteries on the National Register, I want to come at master plans from the same way. Master plans take on a number of different names. It can be a master plan, a preservation plan. They all essentially mean the same thing. And this is a document which specifically lays out a plan for how a cemetery is going to be maintained, be preserved. Now, I want to give the caveat that different cemeteries may need different types of master plans. Large cemeteries versus small cemeteries, urban cemeteries versus rural cemeteries, municipal versus privately owned. There are a lot of things to take into consideration. I'm going to try to break all of them down for you today. I don't profess to be an expert, but I have written several master plans myself. Keep in mind that some of the examples I'm going to be talking about here are absolutely huge undertakings. And so when I talk about a quarter of a million dollar master plan, don't panic. The same way that maintaining your family cemetery or your local cemetery is different than having to mow hundreds of acres, the the same thing goes for a master plan. Developing a master plan for a smaller cemetery doesn't need to be a daunting task and it doesn't necessarily need to be something that you hire someone to do. Hopefully I can lay out the quintessential things that you need to take into consideration because I think that this is something that the majority of people who are interested in cemeteries and I've said this before I'll say it again they are interested on a much more personal level they are looking to maintain a cemetery in their neighborhood or their town or their village whatever it might be they're looking to restore the graves of their ancestors they're not necessarily people who are in the field professionally I meet a lot of people who work in cemeteries and it just so happens I know a lot of the professionals. I've brought a lot of them on this show. But more often than not, the people are going to be your weekend warriors. They're going to be relatives or friends or people who just want to try to beautify part of their community. I'm more gar going towards the goal of trying to educate those people because I know that a lot of people are enthusiastic about cemeteries who don't necessarily have a background in historic preservation, in architectural history. That doesn't mean that you can't still make a difference. And that's one of the biggest things I wanted to advocate for 
in terms of education is just giving you the tools that you might not have thought you needed when you first started out. So I might as well start out too by saying hopefully, uh, I know last week's episode was a little bit of a heavier topic. Um, Hopefully you guys did learn something from it. Uh, That's one of the reasons I wanted to switch gears this week and do a little bit less history and focus more on preservation because the weather is getting nice. It is 85 degrees here in Atlanta today. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, I am observing it from inside my apartment right now because there's too much noise. I have a construction site next to my apartment and I tried to get rid of that ambient noise so you wouldn't be bothered by it. But um, as the weather gets better, people are going to want to be out there in the field and they're going to want to start doing that cleanup after the winter, raking up the leaves, trying to clean up cemeteries. So it's a good time to start considering some of your long-term goals. So this seemed like an appropriate topic. Um, I'm going to try to point you in the direction of some really good resources. I will link them up in the show notes. I've talked to a lot of people about this, mainly because I know I've talked about my work with Buckhead Heritage before. Over the past year or so, I have been working with Buckhead Heritage, and we have one cemetery in particular that we're looking to restore. And Tamara, who is our rock, she is the head of our cemeteries committee, she is wonderful, and she has done this before. And they did put together a master plan for it. And I started to talk about this and she said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe you should make one for Mount Olive, which is the cemetery that we're working on. So over the past year, I did write a master plan and it is a small cemetery. It's just about an acre. So I certainly have seen it from both sides because I can go back to my master's thesis when I used the master plan that was written by the Halverson Group for Swan Point Cemetery as an invaluable source of information. So I've seen for big cemeteries, I've seen it for small cemeteries. I've seen enough to know what I think is important and what I think you guys need to know. Um, But also you are the best judge of your cemetery. So things might occur to you that don't occur to me. And also I have mainly experienced this on the East Coast. We have very old cemeteries here. The challenge is that face you if you are somewhere out west say where you live in a much drier climate or even a much wetter climate like the pacific northwest they might be different challenges i also tried to pull resources from a number of different types of cemeteries that hopefully it will give you different perspectives all right so if you're developing a master plan why would you do it in the first place Well, my first argument would be that it's the same idea that if you're sitting down to write a research paper, it's always easier to write an outline first. If you know what the major points are, it's going to be a lot easier to achieve them. I'm not a list person, but I know a lot of people who are, and they like to be able to check things off a list. Likewise, if you have a list, if you have an outline of things that you want to do, It helps you to prioritize them. Often when you come into a cemetery that has been neglected, you have to be able to prioritize this is important, this is less important. These are the major issues. My original goal for this was to try to find a cemetery to use as a case study. Um, 
and I confess I did fail at that. Um, I checked out a couple of examples of things that I thought might work, but some of them were just too challenging. Some of them I didn't have enough information. And to put together an episode inside a week, I don't have a perfect example for you. So the best example I'm going to use is I'm going to use the example of Mount Olive, which Mount Olive is the cemetery that I have been working on a master plan for. Now, I know I've said some of this before, but I'm going to reiterate it in case you're a new listener or you just don't remember. So Mount Olive is the last remaining remnant of an African-American neighborhood in Buckhead, which Buckhead is in the northern part of Atlanta. Today it is very wealthy. This is where all the millionaires live. But back in the 1920s, there was a planned community known as Macedonia Park. And it was designed for lower to middle class African Americans. And it was a beautiful little community of about 400 families. Then, Starting in the late 1940s through the early 1950s, the city of Atlanta took all of the homes in Macedonia Park through eminent domain for use as a city park, which was originally known as Bagley Park, interestingly enough, after the Bagley family, which was one of the prominent families in Macedonia Park. Today it is Frankie Allen Park. It's still there. It was built, in, like I said, in the early to mid-50s. Uh, It is the home of Buckhead Baseball, which is why most people know it. If they have had kids that play in Little League, they've probably played a game there. There was originally a church. The church is now gone. All of the houses are gone. However, the cemetery that was associated with the church, Mount Olive, is still there. About 10 years ago, the land where the cemetery stands which is a separate parcel of land, even though it's surrounded by the park on three sides, was sold on the courthouse steps here in Atlanta for non-payment of taxes. Now, you have heard me say it before, cemeteries are not taxable. So this was essentially a clerical error, but a gentleman bought the piece of land meaning to develop it because it's in the middle of Buckhead and it's worth millions. However... Buckhead Heritage intervened. One of their members who was a lawyer took the case pro bono and he found a living descendant. So I mentioned the name Bagley. Mr. Bagley's granddaughter is a woman named Alon Osby. And Alon, along with Buckhead Heritage, went to the city, took it to court, and eventually they had it declared a permanent cemetery and the gentleman's request to remove the burials was refused. So they saved it, which is a great success story. However, years of neglect, years of overgrowth, mean that there are very few stones left. There's probably, I would say, approximately 15 marked graves that are still there. However, Ground penetrating radar has been done on the property, and we know that there are significantly more than that, probably closer to 75 to 100. But because it's very difficult to tell that it's a cemetery, it still gets a lot of damage. So it's been one of the big goals to fence this area in, to restore the headstones that are still there, to cut back some of the you know voluntary growth trees and plants, and to generally try to restore the cemetery as much as possible. 
Now, we have talked before about the issue of restoration versus preservation. In this case, it truly is a restoration effort because they're trying to get back the semblance of what it may have looked like originally. Obviously, they're not talking about making reproduction headstones because we have no records. There are no burial records for this church. Other than the marked graves, we don't really have much record of who was buried there. This is honestly not that uncommon. Harmony Grove, which is the other cemetery that was restored by Buckhead Heritage a few years ago, had some very prominent people buried there. And similarly, they have one deed for the whole cemetery. And it was discovered quite by accident. I know I've told that story on the podcast before too, how um, a, a wife and her son were placing a headstone on the unmarked grave of her late husband's mother. That was one of his dying requests, that they mark his mother's grave. And when they went to put this down, they happened to have a copy of the deed, and they showed it to everyone. And that is the only deed that they have. And I will give Harmony Grove as an excellent example. They did get a professional master plan put together. The interesting thing is, is that the master plan, the way it was eventually executed, they did end up making changes. So, for example, one thing I know that was recommended was that they put in walkways. That if people stuck to the walkways, it would discourage them from doing further damage to the graves. But it turned out that they had drainage problems from the walkways and that it was just overall a logistic nightmare. So they ended up changing that. One of the recommendations that even a professional firm made didn't end up getting executed. So master plans are something that develops a framework, but it is flexible. So if you are developing a master plan, so I gave you the background on what we were talking about with Mount Olive and what I was developing. So my goal was, first of all, to find out as much information as we could get. If there are records out there, find them. And to do that, you need to do a couple things. So first of all, try to identify a descendant community. Right now, Ilan, who is on the cemeteries committee with me, is our only descendant. She has some information. She has photographs of the, the original Macedonia Park. She has letters. She has family items. She actually has the original sign from when it was called Bagley Park after her grandfather. Um, they gave it to her when they took it down. The city took it down. Having a descendant community, I always say this, I can learn more about a place talking to somebody for 10 minutes than I can in 10 hours of research. Because... We're looking for stories. We're looking for what we know about. And especially with cemeteries, you might be able to find descendants who say, well, I remember my Uncle Arthur was buried over there and Aunt B was buried over here. And even though you don't have documentation, it gives you a better idea. They can also give you an indication of what things used to look like. Well, there used to be a wooden picket fence here. It's long since rotted away, but that's what it used to look like. In terms of preservation and restoration this gives you a better idea of what you want to do thirdly descending communities should be the ones who make the decisions because they are stakeholders in this now this is where it becomes difficult so if you have a cemetery that is owned by a municipality like a city or a town you're going to have a very different experience than a private cemetery or in this case an abandoned cemetery the city of Atlanta, and this is the process that we're going through right now, it can grant authority to an organization 
whether it's a friends group or somebody that's an established nonprofit like Buckhead Heritage, they can grant authority to be the steward of a cemetery. And many states have laws like this. If there is a cemeteries commission or something like that, then you're going to have to deal with them. It depends on the state. This is something that it's hard for me to say that you really have to look up your local laws, but you do. But if you are going to have to deal with any kind of legal ramifications, you're going to want to make sure that you have the authority to do so. Secondly, you have to understand overall policy. So if there are certain rules governing cemeteries in your state, which I wish that there was a national database on this, it's something that the Association for Gravestone Studies is really passionate about getting done, definitely if and when that happens, you will be the first to know about it. My recommendation is do a little bit of research. If you can, reach out to, say, your state historic preservation office. If you are in a city, if there is some sort of historic preservation board or committee. Personally, I was interested in something I had seen at the Nashville City Cemetery when I was in Tennessee. They had these really remarkable signs. They looked kind of like scrapbooks. They were beautiful. They were some of the highest quality signs that I had seen that displayed like historic information. So I started making phone calls and I eventually found the guy that designed him and he was able to give me the name of the company and exactly the dimensions and he sent me the mock-ups. If you poke enough sleeping bears, eventually one of them's going to wake up. So that would be my first recommendation. Identify your stakeholders and get that legal paperwork side of it out of the way. A lot of places don't care about historic cemeteries. So in many cases, you're probably not going to have to worry about that. And especially if you have an established friends group and you're looking to take the next step, you're already golden. Now, what are your goals? If I had to identify what I think are the three biggest goals, it would be cleanup, purely practical. Get the brush, get the leaves, get the overgrown trees out. Many abandoned cemeteries, this is your biggest challenge. Secondly, preservation or restoration. Uprighting damaged monuments, repairing damaged monuments. If headstones have fallen over and have been propped up against a wall, trying to get them back to the correct location. Thirdly, having the money to do this. And if I could advocate for one thing, writing a master plan that clearly and concisely lays out your goals and explains what you want to do, if you go to say, whether it's an urban design commission, whether you have to speak before a town council, or if you are applying for grant money, either through the SHPO, which often state historic preservation offices will give money in the form of grants for this type of thing, or private organizations. If you go in with a clear and concise document and you can hand it to them nicely packaged up and say, this is what we want to do. We have prioritized what we want to do. We maybe have an idea that 5000 10000 however much money they are willing to give could help us to achieve these goals they are far more likely to take you seriously 
Because the fact is, even if you're good intentioned, if you have no idea how you're going to spend somebody else's money, they're not going to trust you with it. So if you are looking to go that next step, and I think that that's where a lot of people are, you know, finding manpower, finding people who can, you know, get their bush hogs out there, get their weed whackers out there, rake leaves, that's easy. Not easy, but it's easier than having somebody hand you a check. So I would encourage people who have an idea of what they want to do, who have written a list, say, okay, first we got to trim the trees. Next, we have to repair this broken fence. All of those things, once you have that list, try to put it into a cohesive form. And that's where a master plan comes into play. So we talked about descendant communities. Who else do you get involved? This is a tough question, and it is going to vary a lot. The main places I would start is start talking to people in the community. This is where historical societies, genealogical societies, your local library, even, and I kid you not, your local funeral home can be very, very useful partners. And I caused an entire team to laugh on a conference call once. Because they said to me, they said, how do you know who owns this cemetery? And I said, I called the funeral home. And I said, when you need to bury somebody in this cemetery, who do you call? And they gave me the guy's phone number. In a small town especially, and this is a very small town this particular project was, they do know it. So often, they don't have a website. They don't have a business card to give you. But it's old Joe and he takes care of it because his uncle took care of it before him and his grandfather took care of it before his uncle. They can be very valuable to you. And if you say, hey, I have a really dedicated group of volunteers. I have an Eagle Scout who is looking to do something. They're going to be very receptive to that. You can talk if it's a municipal cemetery that's suffering. Parks and Recreation Department the town or city manager. If there is some sort of arborist tree conservator in town, that is a very valuable person to talk to. I have talked to many people who do cemetery preservation where they know that they do not have the budget for tree removal, but they have a tree that might be, say, leaning over a county road, and so they can kind of gently bring it up, and sometimes you can get that dead tree limb, which could fall and cause a lot of damage in your cemetery, removed as part of the regular maintenance. But the fact is, if you're in a rural county where there's tons of trees, they might not even know about it. Libraries, this is a tough one. This one does vary, especially because the more rural you tend to get, the more regional libraries tend to be. And so you might not have people who are as focused, but lots of places do have really, really great public libraries that have huge collections. I was doing research for a project down in Macon, Georgia which Macon, you know, is in the top five metro areas. It's a pretty big metro area, not the city itself. But the main, I believe it's Washington Street branch of their library, has a huge, huge archive that is actually the archive for all of middle Georgia. And the great thing was is that if you were curious about something else, they had particularly cemetery books 
for tons of the more rural counties surrounding Macon. So libraries often will surprise you with what they have in their own collections. Obviously, historical and genealogical societies are going to be the best. Now, the one thing I will warn you about here is the same way that talking to somebody can be very useful, sometimes the things that people put in local historical societies can be equally useless. I, um, I handled a project a couple years ago where my reviewer called me and said, well, did you know that the local historical society has a whole book about this cemetery? To which I said, what? It was a tiny little cemetery by a railroad track. And so I went down to the Historical Society and I asked them and they brought it out and it was, I kid you not, a spiral bound notebook that some kind gentleman had gone out there in illegible chicken scratch and recorded the visible headstones. I have looked at files for small family cemeteries where there are 10 copies of the exact same list of headstones. But, and this is me trying not to be too judgmental, Also, when you have a natural disaster that takes out a number of headstones or you don't know where they are, sometimes if you can look back at this from 1990 or 1974, that can also be valuable. Especially when headstones start to deteriorate quickly or they have been badly repaired. This happens a lot. Sometimes the repairs will damage them beyond recognition, especially if you use Portland cement. We have talked about the danger of this where they can cause stones to literally explode and crumble as they expand. One of the ways that you can use this data is to try to undo some of that damage. Even if the stones are beyond repair, you at least have an idea and you can document that. Now, there is... I don't know, some debate over the preservation versus restoration. I am not a huge fan, always, of full restoration. If a marker is lost, I struggle because I don't think that I, even as somebody who is an advocate for cemeteries, necessarily have the right to decide how that grave is marked. And I know I've given the example of the um, Danvers State Hospital Cemetery, where the good meaning friends group had gone through and they had bought identical flat garden style markers and they marked all of the graves. But in the process, they also pulled up the original markers, which were made by patients at the state hospital to mark those. And they just threw them in the woods in a pile. And to me, it was very disappointing because it was, first of all, you lost these markers, which are really, really unique, but also That was the way that the patient's graves were originally marked. And somebody made that with their own hands. So it's the same way where you see, you know, somebody says, well, wouldn't it be better if we had a a granite marker instead of a wooden marker? Well, how did that person choose to mark their grave? And this is something that I have had to kind of come around to. I know Ashley is a huge advocate for this. Um, She is very much a stickler for the exact type of historic representation that was there, including both materials, style, design, all of those aspects, which I get. I really do. Now, if you are putting together a preservation plan, this might be some of the challenges that you face. 
because you might not have all of the tools that you need there. Depending on the size of the cemetery, whether it's 10 stones, 100 stones, or 1,000 stones, you need to be able to break down what your critical projects are. So if your preservation plan includes cleaning, minor repairs, like say resetting headstones, and major repairs, things like pinning or writing, you know, tipped obelisks or really large things that you're going to have to rent equipment for, break that down. Because the fact is, if you are also putting together a plan for what you're going to have volunteers do, well, volunteers can very easily clean stones with minimal to no training. Volunteers that have been taught how to reset headstones, they can do that. But the major repairs, you're going to have to move that down the line. And so if you are budgeting, that might be something you need to budget a professional for. If that helps a little bit. Um, The next thing you might ask, how do you package it? Now, I usually lay it out the same way I would any report, where you break it down topically. Because also, if you are, say, presenting this to multiple parties, and the majority of the time you will, especially if you're dealing with some sort of municipal cemetery or something where you have to go to a city or a town, you might have to go to the town council, separate from parks and recreation, separate from, you know, the tree specialist. And so whoever you're going to is going to be interested maybe in a different part of your report. So breaking it down into smaller, manageable chunks is really, really important. Okay. So you start to write it. You have a list of priorities. You have a list of people you want to involve. How do you bring more attention? A master plan also is something that you can use as a tool to bring other people in, especially if you plan to do some sort of public meeting, say at a public library or some sort of community space at a community center. You could always have a public meeting and advertise it. This doesn't necessarily have to be something you pay for. Um, I'm always a little surprised when I do public meetings and we advertise in the legal section of the classifieds. Who reads the legals? I never have in my life. I think it's an older person thing. I hate to say it. Um, but if you post it on Facebook, on a community board, on a neighbor bo- neighborhood board, at, again, at the public library, someplace that people are going to see it, I think that being able to attract a wider group of people who might be invested. Talk to community partners. If you know that your friend who works at the credit union, they're looking to do some sort of service project, you can say, hey, we have a great opportunity coming up. We're going to do a cleanup on the 22nd. All of this, again, if you have the master plan and you are able to have a long-term goal, it's going to make your planning a lot more efficient. So if I had to give you my number one priority in terms of all of this stuff, it's going to be safety. And so I would always encourage that if you are laying out your master plan, that you start off with a statement of your goals. And secondly, you start off with some sort of idea about safety. Now, I actually took a class on master planning with the Florida Public Archaeology Network, and they have done a lot of work 
obviously throughout Florida on a number of different projects, but they developed something called the PACT Manual, um, which is a historic cemetery long-range planning workbook um, that essentially laid out stewardship, organization, best practices, and resources. And PACT stands for the Pensacola Area Cemetery Team. It's interesting. 2015, so five years ago, seems to have been the hallmark year for master plans because almost every example I'm going to give you this episode comes from 2015. So I took this um, this class with the Florida Public Archaeology Network last year, and to me it was very enlightening because they broke down all of the major topics that I've talked about here. So I would definitely recommend it, and I'm going to link up the packed manual um, in the show notes because if it's something that you're interested in, they lay it out very, very comprehensively. Um, what they look at in Pensacola is a wide range of cemeteries. It's very, very good. They also break down some of the major challenges that you might see. They talk about other people that you might bring in. So, for example... Are you going to have to have your landscape evaluated? Do you need to bring in a tree surgeon? Cultural questions. Who do we know that might be able to identify it? So particularly in African-American cemeteries, there are certain plants that you want to keep because they are traditionally planted at African-American grave sites. They are not volunteer growth. They talked a lot, uh, and they actually gave each of us a case study of a different cemetery to look at um, as part of this, and... The example I had was, um, it was actually three cemeteries in Jacksonville. Uh, They didn't know who owned them. They were a little confused about certain issues, but there were things like open vaults in the ground. And, you know, first and foremost, if you were developing a plan, it's like, okay, get plywood out there, get somebody out there to cover those up so you don't potentially have pedestrians who are being injured by falling monuments, by falling into open grave shafts, all of those things. Again, you need to be able to prioritize. For most people, that's not going to be an issue. If you're looking at a small cemetery that mainly has damaged stones and is overgrown, that has completely different issues. Um, So that's why I'm going to try to give you some of these different resources, all of which I think attack it in different ways, but they basically give you an idea of any type of situation that you could encounter. So definitely the Florida Public Archaeology Network is a really good one. Um, and I have, actually, I still have the sheet from the, they call them the Moncrief Road Cemeteries, um, which has some photos. And there's one, a huge one of just a gaping open concrete burial vault, which I think is worth seeing. So I will try to take a picture of that or scan that for you. Um, the other thing that I would mention in terms of that. If you can make a partnership with either the city, the county, because I know it varies depending on where you are, who kind of has the the power in terms of municipalities, try to see if they have previously dealt with things like this. In many cases, they may not have. They also might have resources for you and say, well, you know, we haven't dealt with this in our town, but we know these people who did. Again, Talking to people, I cannot overstate the importance of it. That's going to be your best source of information. Now, I'll give you a couple of other examples. 
my former co well current co-worker but former cubicle mate Christine um she left a couple months ago she still works part-time for my company but she now works in the city of Mobile which is where she is from and knowing my interest in cemeteries she and I had talked um about Magnolia and a few of the other cemeteries there and I had said to her one day this is before she went to work for the city of Mobile that I was very impressed with the master plan that had been made for the Church Street Graveyard. So the Church Street Graveyard uh, is the, it may not be the oldest in Mobile, but it, it's definitely the oldest of these kind of municipal cemeteries. It was founded in 1820. And it fills up pretty quickly, so quickly that in 1836, Magnolia Cemetery is established, which is sort of their garden-style cemetery. Uh, and burials peter off until it eventually is closed to new burials in 1898. So it's a purely 19th century graveyard, and you can kind of tell by the fact that it's referred to as a graveyard, not a cemetery. It's right in that sort of downtown historic district. There are some beautiful monuments there. You can look up pictures of it. However, it's also a cemetery that struggles with some very specific urban issues. First of all, it's right along the route from Mardi Gras. Now, I know everybody associates Mardi Gras with New Orleans, but proud people from Mobile will tell you that they started the tradition. Uh, and just based on the text that I've been getting from Christine, they have a good time there. And I know that her office closed for several days during Mardi Gras because you can't even get to that part of downtown. So you have revelers, you have partiers. Um, again, Think the acid tripping scene in Easy Rider. That's New Orleans. But similar idea that people get in and they do a lot of damage. And being right on that parade route, right in the middle of the thick of things, has over the years taken its toll on the cemetery. Now, Church Street was listed on the National Register in 71, but as we talked about back in episode 19... National Register does not necessarily offer you protection from vandalism or any kind of special privileges that help you to protect a resource. You can certainly have a National Register eligible property of any kind that's crumbling into dust because it doesn't necessarily provide you with financial benefits just by virtue of being on the register. The other issue with Church Street is that because it is downtown, it suffers a lot from the homeless population who live there. And this is something that those who have worked in and around urban cemeteries are very familiar with. Um, Ann Tate, who I, of course, know through the Association for Gravestone Studies, she's a professor at Roger Williams University up in Rhode Island. She is an artist, and for a long time, she used the um, caretaker's cottage at the Grace Church Cemetery in Providence as her artist studio. Uh, the church was happy to have someone there. It cut down on their liability having somebody in the building so nobody broke in. But she eventually struggled with the fact that the homeless population was always camping out on the front of her studio. Um, there's damage. There are not bathroom facilities. You can imagine... It's one of those things that it also makes sense, though, because these areas, you know, the grass is mowed. 
They're relatively private, they're relatively quiet. Often they treat the grass for insects and things like that, so you don't have to worry about those things. And it can be very attractive to a homeless population. But it's a huge challenge in terms of preservation if you have people living there, if you have people using the cemetery as a bathroom. So all of those things are definite considerations when it comes to something like Church Street. And um, in 2015, they did develop um, a master plan. Um, it was handled by the Chikora Foundation up in Columbia, South Carolina. And it breaks down the entire story by not just identifying what the challenges are, but also laying out a plan for how to fix them. And this is all available online, which I think is really great. Um, I will say that I think understanding that there are a lot of challenges that face people trying to develop master plans, municipalities have been hugely open about them and they publish them and they are out there. Uh, I don't believe that I have seen Oakland's because Ashley showed it to me. I don't believe Oakland's is online, but there are a number of other ones. Uh, obviously, I'm going to link up the Church Street Graveyard Master Plan. It's great because they also did a lot of really good research. So you can see, you know, historical sketches. There's there's some really solid stuff in there. Um, having this is something now that the city can use as a tool. And we have seen increasingly in cemetery preservation more and more cities taking this seriously. I'm kind of curious, uh, another friend of mine from the Association for Gravestone Studies, um, Ashlyn Rickard, whose name is now Werner, I know I said that every time about her, just took over leading up the city of Providence's cemeteries. And so I'll be curious to see if they have developed a master plan or that's part of their next goal. Because larger cities often have to have huge master plans because they have multiple municipal cemeteries. This past year at the Georgia Municipal Cemeteries Conference, there was a young lady there from Austin and she was there to present on how she, as a historic preservationist, was handling things based on their master plan. So Austin, Texas, again, right around the same era, um, starting in September of 2013, brought up the idea that they needed a master plan for the five city cemeteries. So the five city cemeteries that are owned by the municipality of Austin are Oakwood, Oakwood Annex, Evergreen, Austin Memorial Park, and Plumbers Cemetery. So together, we are talking hundreds of acres. We are talking a wide range of dates. Some of these are older, you know, rural Victorian cemeteries. Some of them, like the Memorial Park, are much newer. You have a wide range of challenges. So this is a massive undertaking. And this is definitely the most expensive of them. Um, what we have is that in 2014, so about six months later, so in September, they put out that they are looking for bids. And on February 27th of 2014, they award it to Amaterra Environmental Incorporated. And they authorized $207,647.57 for the creation of a master plan. And I know what you're thinking. That's a lot of money. It is. But keep in mind, five cemeteries... Hundreds, if not 
thousands of acres, dozens of employees, dozens of maintenance staff. It's a huge undertaking. And like I said, I don't know the exact price tag, but I know that Oakland's here in Atlanta was somewhere around $100,000. But that's, again, it's a 46-acre cemetery. Bigger cemeteries are going to require more. And the majority of you are not going to be taking on a cemetery over maybe two or three acres, especially if you're dealing with a family cemetery or dealing with a local cemetery. And if you are, then you're going to reach the point where you may need to reach out to a municipality or you need to try to apply for a grant to get some help. This is a personal opinion, but if you are dealing with a smaller area, I wouldn't necessarily waste your money on hiring somebody to write you a master plan. I think it's more important to use your money for specialists when you're outside your range, whether it's a tree surgeon, whether it's somebody that's going to come and assess monuments for you somebody who's going to actually repair the monuments. Or, this is a huge one, ground penetrating radar. It's pricey, it's going to cost you a couple of grand, but you can get way more data from that than you can from virtually anything else. So especially if you're dealing with a long abandoned cemetery where you've lost many of your headstones, that's going to be a really big ticket item that's worth every cent. I just saw a presentation a couple of weeks ago, I think it was the, the week before we all went into quarantine, where there was an assessment made, again, of another one of the local cemeteries here in Atlanta. And I know the price tag, so I know exactly how much was they were charged for this. It's a church community, so it's a church cemetery. They went out there, and they did a pretty good job, but I know that they charged them several thousand dollars to go out there and essentially count the headstones, say this is what the materials are of the headstones. We think that these are unmarked graves, but we're not really sure. And that was probably about a $3,700 charge. Was that the best use of resources? In my opinion, probably not. But now they're ready to take the next step and they know, all right, we have unmarked graves. We're going to have to invest in GPR next. We're going to have to invest in somebody to do these repairs. So in moving to the next step, it's going to depend a lot on what your resources are. If you are a very busy person or if you are a group that doesn't necessarily have the time to do that and you can afford to hire someone because you've received a grant or whatever it might be, by all means do it. There are plenty of firms out there who are willing to handle it, whether it's an archaeology firm, some sort of cultural resource management firm, but just be smart about it. So Amaterra, when they developed this master plan, to give you an idea, so before when I had talked about PACT and the Florida Public Archaeology Network, when they had been developing one of their master plans, they gave a time frame of about three years. And this is not meant to scare anybody, but these things do take time. So from September of 2013, when they first called for proposals in Austin, it was going to take until September of 2015, so a full two years, to get it approved by the city council. That's mainly because not only do you have a huge scope, but also there are a lot of people involved. And so I went through the meeting minutes for you just to give you an idea. So they had to consult with the Urban Forestry Board, the Historic Landmark Commission, the Preservation Planning Committee of the Historic Landmark Committee, Commission, 
Land, Facilities, and Program Committee of the Parks and Recreation Board, the Environmental Board, the Planning Commission, the Open Space Environment and Sustainability Committee, and then finally, final approval by the whole Austin City Council. That's a lot of moving parts. That's a lot of people who need to approve things. But keep in mind that this was something that the taxpayers were paying for. So, obviously, they needed to have, you know, the trees blessed by the Forestry Board. They needed to have the design blessed by the Historic Preservation Committee. On a smaller scale, again, you're not probably going to have to jump through this many hoops. But that's one of the reasons that these plans are so expensive is that they need to cover a lot more ground. If you are dealing with a one-acre cemetery that's or less than an acre cemetery in your neighborhood that you're looking to get your neighborhood committee to sponsor and to clean up, and you guys might need $200 to buy trash bags and do some minor repairs, that's a whole different story versus spending $100,000 for a master plan that's going to take you through the next century of care. It is a growing trend. Now, different private cemeteries may have people on staff who are actually invested in this. It completely varies. Um, Depending on your cemetery, too, the larger your structures, the more people you're going to have to get involved. And this is a major pet peeve I personally have. A lot of times when I go to cemetery conferences or gatherings, they tend to use the big ticket items as examples. They tend to use the Mount Auburns and the Greenwoods and the Oaklands as their examples. The majority of cemeteries in the United States are not like them. They don't have the history, they don't have the organization, and they certainly don't have the bankroll. It's all well and good for a cemetery that has a dedicated group of donors, that has a nonprofit organization to raise money for something like this. It's an entirely different story if you, like I said, are a weekend warrior who has a full-time job. Now, I have seen people who do it very, very successfully. I know I have talked about Carlo and Betty before. They are the charming couple um, from Western Rhode Island, They are out in Chipachet, and they have single-handedly restored, I think, close to 50 historic cemeteries. If you heard me talking, they're the ones who also, they restored the headstone of Bathsheba Sherman, who is perhaps most famous as being the witch from The Conjuring. They are complete weekend warriors. Now, granted, they're handy. Carlo built their log cabin, but... I am in constant awe of what they have managed to do. And they have done research into varieties of grass that only grow an inch or two. That way you don't have to worry about mowing the grass. They have done the research. It is entirely possible for people to successfully handle this type of work on their own. What I'm saying is that it's a lot easier not to get overwhelmed and not to get discouraged with a master plan. Because the master plan lays things out And it breaks it down into those smaller manageable pieces. Also, if you have a dedicated group and you know your strengths lie with fundraising 
and Alice's strengths lie with talking to people. And Ron's strengths, they lie with the outdoor stuff. He can has the nicest lawn on the block. He can do all that. If you have a master plan, break it up into smaller pieces and say, all right, Alice, you're going to write this part. Ron, you're going to write this part. Bring it all back together and then sit down as a committee and go through and say, hey, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. I think it's huge. I really do. Um, Be open to feedback. Work your way through it. Think of it as a work in progress. Because like I said, some things are not going to work. Going back to Harmony Grove, the idea that, you know, it was a plan that was developed by professionals, people who knew their business, but they discovered when they got out there and they actually started to lay down walking paths, it just wasn't feasible. And it's a beautiful little cemetery now. It really is. And they have been able to keep it up because part of their plan was not just to get it fixed, but how they were going to keep it that way. And so before I close, that would be my final thing to say to you is make sure that if it's a long-term plan, you plan for the future. Because more often than not, I see a lot of really strong starts on cemetery projects where people go in They can remove the brush and they can do a cleanup day, but they don't have a plan for long-term maintenance. And this is a problem I see across historic preservation. It's not just cemeteries. So make sure ongoing maintenance, ongoing communication is going to be part of your master plan. That way you're not just fixing things in the short term. You are using the document as a larger framework for how it's going to continue to protect the resource in future generations all right off soapbox hopefully that gave you a little bit of a background um this is one I struggled a little bit with because again I can give you examples I can talk you through some of it but I wish I I just had a really nice master plan to show you and break it down and let's be honest you're not here on a podcast to have me read you somebody else's master plan These are really, really good resources. I will put them up there. So if you are interested and this is something that you're looking to do for yourself, please check out these resources because they are fantastic across the board. They are going to lay out the most comprehensive way that you can break this down into smaller pieces and you can write it for yourself. The other thing, and this is just my personal opinion, make it as colorful and as visually stimulating as possible. And I know a lot of people will disagree with that. If you can try to break it down into the most concise language, if it takes flowcharts, if it takes a, you know, just a graph of some kind, I think that visually people are a lot more interested in that. Try to include historic sketches, photographs. That way you can illustrate things in as many different ways as possible. Like I said, this is entirely my opinion, But I think that people respond to that, especially if you are looking at having to present this document to a really wide variety of audiences. Hopefully you guys go out there and tackle that, especially those of you who are really interested in preserving your own local cemetery or your own pet project. I think it's going to be a huge tool for you. Any questions, of course, you can always get in touch with me. Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com. Tomb of the View dot weebly.com and I confess I've been bad I have not been updating with resources every week mainly because despite being in quarantine uh, my company has been busier than ever which knock on wood is a great thing I put out like 800 pages of documents this week so I've been a little bit overwhelmed so I apologize for that but I will try to get that up to date as soon as possible 
Also, please subscribe, rate, and review. They help more than you can imagine to make me visible, especially on iTunes and Spotify and all that good stuff. I know it takes a minute to log in, but if you can, I really do appreciate those ratings and reviews. Then lastly, again, I was delinquent this week on social media, but please follow along Tomb of the View podcast on Facebook and Tomb Period with Period A Period View on Instagram try to show you guys some cool stuff. Um, I have been taking a walk or a run every night and I have visited a couple of new cemeteries. So maybe I can post some fun photos of that. And if you guys have visited anything, if you guys are taking a walk in the cemetery during quarantine, please tag me at Tomb of the View and um, I will share some of those pictures because I love to see what you guys are up to. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin and this is Tomb of the View.